Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful that we are here this morning in Your house of worship. We're thankful that You have drawn us here. Father, we're thankful for the bond we have in Christ that we can meet with one another and share our concerns and our praises with one another. And Lord, we're just so grateful for what You have done for us. We ask now that You'll be with us as we gather together. Help us to be open with one another, to share our burdens with one another and lift each other up, Father, because You are the Creator and You hear our prayers, You answer our prayers according to Your will and we, we just want to, everything we do, we want to honor You this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you love Christmas? Quite a few people love Christmas. Good, I love Christmas too. And I know it was a couple of weeks ago, but the lesson today is going to be a Christmas message. And I think the Christmas message should be in front of our minds all year long anyway. So when you think about the Christmas story, what scripture passage comes to mind? Luke 2. Luke 2. That's what most people think of. You think of Luke's account. When you think of what Luke talks about in his account, you talk about Caesar Augustus. You know, calling for a census and Joseph and Mary traveling to Bethlehem to register and while they're there she goes into labor and she has the baby. There's no room in the inn so she has the baby in the manger. Luke tells about the shepherds in the fields hearing the angels proclaim that their Savior is being born. Matthew's account tells about the wise men, the magi following the star to where Jesus was. These are the classic Scripture readings at Christmas time and countless sermons and messages have been done on the various topics surrounding these verses. And we could look at the parents, we could look at Mary and Joseph, the fact that there was no room in the inn. We could talk about how he was born in a lowly manger. We could look at the angels or the shepherds, the wise men, any of the various characters in the story. This is the picture most of the world knows of at Christmas time. Even people who are not believers know these things. This is the picture they have in their minds when it comes to Christmas. They see it in Christmas cards. They see it in the manger scenes. They hear it in Christmas songs. Even though Santa Claus and Christmas trees and gift buying have overtaken the holiday to some extent, this picture of a baby being born in a manger surrounded by angels and shepherds and wise men is still very well known. Even unbelievers go all out to celebrate Christmas and they know all these things, but what are they really celebrating, unbelievers? Santa Claus, gifts, each other, family, time off. I went to find Christmas cards this Christmas. For some reason that job got left up to me to go find Christmas cards. and It wasn't as easy as I thought it would be because I didn't go to the Christian bookstore. I went to a local department store. What are some of the headings on a lot of the Christmas cards? Happy holidays. holidays. And they do have things like season's greetings, joy to the world, peace on earth, things like that. But even the, quote, religious cards didn't really share the message of Christmas very well. You would think going to get a Christmas card, you'd be able to do it a lot easier than that. So, the Christmas story may be very well known, but what is not as well known, or at least is not as well received, is the truths behind the Christmas story. And that's what I want to focus on this morning. 
And to do that, we're not going to be looking at Luke or Matthew's account. We're going to be looking at John's account. So if you want to be turning to John chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14, but our text will be verse 14. The Gospel of John, beginning in verse 1. John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now verse 14, John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. These words of John we just read present the most profound truth in the universe in the simplest terms, that the eternal God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. That was John's mission and whole purpose in writing his book. He tells us so. Not all the gospel writers tell us what their purpose was, but John does. In chapter 20, verse 31, John said, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the message of the book of John. John throughout his book is proclaiming Jesus to be the Son of God, the Messiah that they've been waiting for. And that through his sacrifice for our sins, those who put their faith and trust in him would have eternal life, and those who rejected him would be judged and condemned to eternal punishment. And the first 18 verses of this book of John is a prologue of the entire book. And he will expand upon it throughout the rest of the chapters to prove his case. But I want to zero in on verse 14, which is really the summary of the entire prologue and also even the whole book. Let me read verse 14 again. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is one of the most profound verses in all the Bible. It's very concise. The Word became flesh. God took on humanity. As most of you all know, we're waiting on adoption. Our daughter and son-in-law, Angie and Emil, are adopting a son from Haiti. The process started almost three years ago in Ethiopia. But by God's sovereign hand, they've been steered to a little four-year-old boy named Jorgensen who's in Haiti. They have, they've been there, they visit him, um, but it's, they're still waiting. He's, it's not time for him to come home yet. And... I forgot to bring it. I was going to bring a picture of him. I have a picture that Terry and him put together of Angie and Amel and Jorgensen in the middle and a little smiling face and he's just bonded with them. And, you know, it, we want him to be home with us. And sometimes I look at that picture and I think, what's he like? How's he going to respond? How's he going to laugh? What's, he, what's going to make him happy? And I want him just to pull him out of that picture and bring him here. 
I know it's not a great comparison, but in a sense, that's what God did over 2,000 years ago. God stepped out of heaven and became a man. The people had heard about God. The prophets had spoken of Him. Moses and others had even heard from Him. But when Jesus came to earth as a man, now man could really know who God was, what He was like. You and I can look at Jesus and say, this is what God looks like. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the story of Christmas. And this one verse, verse 14, we're going to see four truths behind the Christmas story. The Christmas story in Luke and Matthew, they mean nothing without the truths that come before it. Truth number one, coming from verse 14, is that God became man. The Word became flesh. God became man. And the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, in order to appreciate the significance of this verse, one needs to really understand who the Word is. And I think we all know the Word is with a capital W that's pretty clear that it's referring to Jesus Christ. But it means even so much more than that. Go back to verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And it's no coincidence that it begins in the beginning. What other book begins like that? Genesis, in the beginning. Which means before creation, before anything that man knows, there was a beginning. And in the beginning, the Word was there. It was in existence then. It goes on to say, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It seems clear, doesn't it? Jesus is, Jesus was, Jesus is God. So if that's true, how come the Jehovah Witnesses and Muslims and others say that Jesus is not God? How do they rationalize this verse? Anybody know? They change it. They interject the word A. Jesus in the word was a God. So they've changed their scripture to interject that, that changes it. He was a God. They teach that Jesus was created. Well, verse 3 actually is worded in such a way that it completely disproves this theory. I don't know why they don't just go on and study the next couple of verses because it says right after that, all things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, Jesus was not a creation of God. He was there in the beginning. He is eternal. He is God. Why is Jesus called the Word? The term Word is from the word logos, which was a term the Greeks and the Jews would have been familiar with. To the Greeks, it represented wisdom. It was a creative source of order and reason in the universe. To the Jews, it was an expression of divine power. By words, the creation in man was spoken in existence. By words, God made known His covenants, His law. Think about what a word is. What is a word? A word is an image or a picture of a thought. Well, Jesus is the express image of the Father, according to Hebrews 1.3. Jesus, the Word, is the God-man, fully God and fully man. Now, I realize this is something we're going to have a hard time comprehending in our finite minds. But when Scripture says He became flesh, it means He's no longer just a spirit. God is spirit. But when He took on flesh, He was no longer just a spirit, but He took on a human nature. Turn over, if you will, to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, is probably there's probably no other passage in Scripture that says it any clearer then Philippians chapter 2. I want to read verses 5 through 8. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. 
Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Now, there's a lot here, there's too much to expound on to, to a great extent, but just some highlights. In Philip verse 6 of that text, it says Jesus existed as God. It says that he was equal to God, did not consider equality with God. The word that we get our word equality from, it comes from the word we get our word isosceles triangle from. You think isosceles, equal, what does that mean, equal sides? That's where we get that word. It says that he was equal to God. The second person of the Trinity he was, and although he had every reason to hold on to all these privileges and rights, this passage just tells us that he let go of that. Verse 7 tells us that. It says he emptied himself. The word comes from canoe. It means nullified or made void. Made himself nothing. The NIV says it that way. He made himself nothing. He did not give up his divinity, but he gave up his status and his privileges. But he never quit being God. He was both fully human and fully man. In Colossians 1.19 it says that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Fully God, fully man. I know it's one of the hardest things to understand, but we don't have to understand to believe. Verse 7 goes on to say, He took on the form of a bondservant. The word form comes from the word morph. It means nature or essence. And it's just the same way He was the exact representation of God. He was exact representation of a bondservant. Didn't say he dressed up and acted like one. It says he was one. He had the essence, the fullest sense. Then it goes on to say that he was made in the likeness of man. The word used here for likeness means more than appearance. It means in reality. In reality, he was a man, just like any other man. He was human. He was not God in a human body. He was a real man and he was really God. When you think of the truth of the humanity of Christ, what do you think of? What comes to mind when you think of the humanity of Christ? How was he born? Just like we were born. He was born of a woman who went through labor and gave birth. And the Bible says he grew in wisdom and stature, just like we would do, just like a child would do. He ate, he drank, he got tired, he got sleepy, he had human emotions, he wept. He was subject to pain and death. He went through all the things that we went through. It even says that Jesus was tempted. We know he was tempted in the wilderness by the Satan. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we know we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You think about that. You know, he was human in every way, even to the point of being tempted. Some will want to argue on this point about being tempted. Was Jesus really tempted to sin? How many people believe Jesus really had the ability to sin? Everybody's scared to raise your hand on that one. Was it really temptation if he didn't have the ability to sin? 
That's a tough thing to understand, but it goes back to understanding what it is to be fully human and fully God. In his humanness, he was tempted. Now, God was not going to allow him to sin because the Bible says God can't be tempted by evil. But remember, he set aside his divinity. He didn't set it aside in the sense that he wasn't truly God, but he didn't rely upon that. He went through temptation humanly. He didn't draw upon his divinity at that point in time. He didn't have the same nature we had. He didn't have the sinful nature of Adam. But you got, don't ever think that Jesus wasn't tempted. He was human and he felt temptation. But he did it without ever sinning. He goes on to say that he was made in the likeness of man. Likeness means more than just appearance. It means reality. He was really a man. He was, then it says he was found in appearance as a man. He was inwardly a man. He was by nature a man. Outwardly he had the appearance of a man. Now think about this. The creator, the holy God of heaven in all his glory came to us looking like a man. Isn't that one of the reasons people didn't believe that he was who he said he was? Because he, they, what did they say about him? You're Joseph's and Mary's son. Yeah, you're a carpenter. You're just a carpenter. You're from Nazareth. What they think about Nazareth? <laughs> Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. So he really appeared as a man and people didn't even want to accept him because of that. You can't be the Messiah. You can't be the king. Even some of them thought he was a curse. They thought he was a demon. How humiliating that must have been for Christ. The passage goes on to talk about how Christ humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. But this passage reiterates the truth about God's descent into a world as a man. This is God stepping out of heaven and into our world in John 1.14. The Word became flesh. Truth number one behind the Christmas story is that Jesus is God, that God became man. Truth number two is, the next line of that sentence is, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Truth number two is that Jesus lived among men. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you know what the word dwelt literally means? It means some render it tabernacled, tabernacled with us. It actually means to pitch a tent. We even use that saying today, don't we? What's it mean to pitch a tent? To camp out somewhere, isn't it? I'm going to camp out right there. I'm going to pitch a tent. I'm going to dwell there. I'm going to tabernacle there. When we want to get up close and personal with people, you would pitch a tent. Back when I was in the remodeling business, in the kitchen remodeling business, I used to drive by this house up on Keystone. It's still there. Many of you probably know it. It's right as you first turn on to Keystone on the left, there's this big mansion with all these big walls around it. As they were building that, everybody would speculate whose it was. Is that John Travolta's house or some other movie star, Tom Cruise's house maybe? Or They were always speculating about who it was. But... What does it say about a person? It, actually, I think it's a baseball player's house. It's what I think I, I came. Yeah, right. So you all know more than I do. But what does it say about a person that builds a big house and then puts a big wall around it? They really don't want anybody coming in. They're not really building the house there to get to know the neighbors and really befriend everyone, are they? Anybody done a lot of camping? Some people are shaking their hands. How is living in a campground different than living in a big house with walls around it? A lot different, isn't it? Yeah, that's the term, pitch a tent. 
think about that as living in a campground, pitching a tent. God came to dwell with man, to pitch his tent with man. When you live in a campground, you eat with your neighbors, you go to a bathhouse together, everybody's kind of out at night walking around and talking to one another. It's kind of like our mobile home park we live in. And I told somebody the other day, sometimes I get tired of waving. There's just so many people out and there's just so many people around. And you know, We lived in a neighborhood for years and I probably had three or four neighbors in our house. And we've probably had 50 neighbors in our house where we live now. And that's the connotation of Christ coming to earth and pitching a tent. He came to dwell with men. For 33 years, God lived physically among us. He dwelt with man. He pitched his tent with men. That's why God became human, so we could get to know Him. I was thinking about this, and I thought about how can I relate to that to us today. In biblical times, when Jesus was there, He ate with tax collectors. He spent time with prostitutes and sinners. But He also had time for rulers like Nicodemus. He confronted the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the temple. He called fishermen to be His disciples and close friends. He witnessed His friends die and he felt their pain he got to know them they got to know him so if he were physically here today how would that change how would that compare be the same wouldn't it how do you see jesus interacting with us if he were physically here today i see him interacting with the downcast the drug addicts the alcoholics the depressed the lonely the sick those battling cancer I see him reaching out to the politicians and the Hollywood elite. I see him reaching out to the super rich of Silicon Valley and talking to them about their building bigger barns. I see him walking into the mega churches and teaching the word in a way that that just but confounds them. I see him confounding the false teachers just as he did in the first century. I have pictures of him weeping for our cities as he rides the suburbs through the downtown areas and weeping for the people that are lost, just like he did as he walked the pass towards Jerusalem. And I believe he would still find people that would be eager to hear his words and sit with him and converse and to sit and learn from him. It would be no different. Different time maybe, but as Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. The Word took on flesh and dwelt among us. That baby's birth we celebrated two weeks ago was nothing less than God Himself taking on flesh and dwelling with us. How many of you are familiar with the TV show Undercover Boss? Yeah, most of you. It's amusing to watch as the CEO of some of these big businesses disguise themselves and go undercover and go back to the front lines of the business and wash dishes or work on assembly lines. But in the end, it lasts a week or two and then what happens? They're back in their ivory towers and maybe one or two people's lives are changed, but nothing much really is different. I can't think of a good illustration to use to picture what God did for us. God left His glory and majesty in heaven to take on nature and the likeness of His creatures and spent over 30 years in that humble state, endured the humiliating and painful experience of the cross, and He did that knowing we know who He, who he is and who He was, and He did that. I usually end up thinking about the most influential person I can think of, and it would probably be the president. And that's probably the most influential position in the world today. Can you picture the president of the United States relinquishing his position, his money, his power, his home, his possessions, everything he has, and spending his life living a meager existence, serving others, and eventually giving his life to save other people? 
Can you picture that? I can't even fathom that. And that's what God did multiplied by a million. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He lived among us. He moved into our neighborhoods. He pitched a tent on our streets in our backyard so we could come to know Him and His Father. Truth number three. Jesus revealed His glory. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory as the only begotten of the Father. As you think about John and the other disciples being spending time with Jesus, you really understand them witnessing His humanity. How did they witness His humanity? They ate with Him, drank with Him, talked to Him, walked with Him, slept with Him. They saw Him tired. They... They got to witness Him in His human state, just as they were. They interacted with Jesus personally and intimately. If anybody knew Jesus, John did. John was one of who they would call His inner circle. He knew His humanity, and yet John tells us here that He was also witness to His glory. And think about that. At first, I thought of, of the scripture that in Isaiah 53, 2 that says, And like a root out of a parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, no appearance that we should be attracted to him. There was nothing in his outward appearance that showed his glory. He looked just like an ordinary blue-collar worker of today in, in a sense. But John says he was a witness to his glory. So how did John witness his glory? Yes, definitely on the Mount of Transfiguration, it says that he witnessed his glory. It says in, I think it's Matthew chapter 2, it says that he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun, his garments became white as light. So he was a witness to that side of his glory. But there was other ways. How, how, what other ways was he a witness to his glory? Yeah, all the miracles. Think about it. You know, and no man could do those things. That was witnessing the glory. I thought about his first, the first. What was his first miracle? The the wedding in Cana when he turned the water into wine. If you go back to, uh, I believe it's uh, John chapter two, verse eleven says, "This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him." So they saw all of his miracles. But it wasn't just his miracles. It wasn't just on the Mount of Transfiguration. Think about when he taught. When he taught, what does the Bible say? The people were what? Amazed at his wisdom, at his knowledge. When he shared with the people, he displayed the love and the compassion and the forgiveness of God. Those were all part of revealing his glory to men. When Jesus stepped out of heaven to walk on the earth, people could gaze intently upon God's presence shining through Him. They could interact with God. They could get to know God through Jesus. When you look at Jesus, you see the glory of God. It goes on to say, And we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Sometimes the word begotten comes from the word monogenous is sometimes wrongly understood. Again, the Jehovah Witnesses and others say that the word implies he was created, the only begotten son, like he was created. And that's not what it refers to. It, it doesn't refer to origin. It refers to uniqueness. It's the same word used in Hebrews eleven seventeen when the writer refers to Isaac as Abraham's only begotten son. Was Isaac Abraham's only son? No, he wasn't. We know he had Ishmael. Now, it's 
It refers to him as the only begotten son in the sense that it's the only one that he had uniquely by Sarah, the son of the covenant. It was that unique relationship. The words used in other places like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Was he his only son? Aren't we God's children as well? We are his adopted children, but we're his children nonetheless. But we're not the unique sons in the sense of the one that came from him as part of his divinity, the triune nature of him. So the word begotten refers to the uniqueness of him. That's part of the glory John has been a witness to. Truth number one behind the Christmas story is that God became man. Truth number two, he lived among us. Truth number three, he revealed his glory. And now truth number four. Truth number four is that there's an impact to the incarnation. It goes on to say, The Word became flesh. He dwelt among us. We saw His glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father. And then it says, full of grace and truth. These words, full in grace, full of grace and truth, have an impact. It's not just a pretty story. It's not just so that we can have a manger scene and think about it. This God becoming man impacted the world in many, many different ways. But mostly it, it comes around these two words, full of grace and truth. What is grace? How would you define grace? God's unmerited favor. I learned it in an acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. That was an easy way for me to remember it. But in, in essence, grace is the revelation of God's love, a love that gives more to men than they deserve. The pinnacle of grace is that Christ gave His life as a sacrifice for us that we wouldn't get what we deserve, which is death. Sometimes when I think about Christian holidays, I think of Easter as the most important holiday because it celebrates the death of Christ, which is so important to us. But Easter wouldn't happen if Christmas didn't happen, would it? The incarnation is a beginning piece of this puzzle of grace. What is truth? Now try to define truth without using the word true in it. It gets a little harder. What is truth? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. See, it is. That's a good way. But authentic. authentic. Trustworthy. Trustworthy. Honest. Honest. Without error. Without error. I mean, the easiest answer is Christ because Christ defines all of those things. But the actual word, if you go back and look at the word that it comes from, actually is is talking about unconcealing or open to view. That's the kind of connotation of the original language. When Jesus came to earth, He came to reveal, to unconceal. That's why when it refers to Him as the light of the world, what does light do? It shines into the dark corners of everything and reveals things. That's what truth does. That's what Christ does. By God's truth, Christ made known to us the way of acceptance and salvation. We find truth in the Word of God. Colossians 1.5, Paul calls the Gospel the Word of truth. In John 17, John says, Sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. The words full of are important too. It says here that only begotten from the Father full of grace and truth. And nothing in the Bible we take lightly. The words full of are important because Jesus was the full expression of God's grace. He was the full expression of God's truth. Originally, before this, they were only partially revealed in the Old Testament. But now through Jesus, fully revealed. 
That's why he could say in John 14, 6 and John 8, 31, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man enters the Father but by me. A belief in God apart from the truth of Christ will not result in salvation. There are a lot of people who believe in a God but don't know Jesus. They're not saved. The Bible says those who do not honor the Son do not honor the Father. Those who reject the truths of the Christmas story are lost. They may embrace Christmas. They may say they believe in Jesus. But if they don't believe the truths behind the story, they're not saved. So the main implication of the incarnation is that Jesus offers hope to those who accept his grace and truth. But there are other implications too. Think about what other implications of the incarnation of Jesus impact us. How does his presence on earth speak to us about his engagement with man? He doesn't want to be aloof and not known, does he? He wants us to know him. He's not up there on a throne, uninterested in what's going on. He wants to be involved in our lives. He wants to take up residence in our lives. He wants to be touchable and approachable. Hebrews 4.15 I read earlier about not having a high priest that can't sympathize with us. So another way that speaks to me is that he wants to identify with our struggles and with our pain. And one of the ways the passage in Philippians 2 spoke to me as I read through that about the incarnation is it reminds me to be humble. If you go back and reread that text in verse 5 through 8, it begins by saying, Have this attitude in yourselves, which also was in Christ Jesus. And then it goes on to talk about him not you know, considering his equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself and became a man and humbled himself all the way to the point of death. How does that speak to you? What right do we have to be prideful about anything if God, the creator of the universe, humbled himself and did all of that for us? So in conclusion, there are many people all around the world that just celebrated Christmas, the birth of Jesus. Some gave him not a second thought. Some gave him passing mention, cursory acknowledgement, some may have read the Christmas story, maybe gave thanks or attended church for the second time that year. But for most of the world, even though they acknowledge the holiday, they don't submit to the truths behind the Christmas story. That God, the creator and the sustainer of the ruler of the world, became a man and came and dwelt among his creation and revealed his glory through Jesus Christ that we might come to know him and be partakers of his grace and his truth. And part of that truth is that he would give his life on the cross for an unworthy sinner like me. He didn't stay up in heaven in his royal majestic palace and condemn us to death, but he humbly stepped out of heaven and came full of grace and truth, offering to reach out to each of us. Now I know in a group like this that we're mostly all saved, but if there's somebody here that hasn't really ever accepted that truth and grace, then today would be a great day to do that. But for the rest of us, May we really dwell on this, the humanness of God and what He did for us and how He came to the earth and what He went through on our behalf. And may we carry the spirit of Christmas with us every day of the year. Let's pray. Father, thank You. We can never thank You enough for what You did for us, sending Your Son into the world as a mere mortal man. And yet, Father, He went through all of that and never sinned. He became that unblemished Lamb for us. He went through all the pain and the agony of the humiliation of the cross. And He did it willingly. 
And He did it for us. He did it for me. And He did it for each of these here today. Father, may we carry the encouragement that You love us so much that You would go through that, that You would send Jesus to do that for us. Father, may that truth and that grace propel us to walk in a way that is worthy of the manner of being called a Christian, to carry Your name in the world. May we be lights in this dark place because of that truth and because of the grace that You showed us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.